Well, good morning, everyone. Do, uh, do keep Luke 6 uh, open there in front of you. We will be looking at that together this morning. And uh, I do, for those of you who are paying attention during the Transforming Lives spot, I want to I publicly acknowledge Louise, Josh's mum, for taking one for the team and getting into the airport on Wednesday <coughs> this week. Let me lead us in prayer. Dear Father in heaven, we thank you for your word spoken, your word you caused to be written down, your word that we have heard read. Uh, we, and as we reflect on it now, uh, speak it into our hearts by that same spirit that did all of that. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I wonder how you felt as you heard our passage read today. Uh, I, I found it extraordinary. Uh, even if you feel like it's familiar territory and in step with the Jesus you've known uh, for quite some time, it's worth slowing down to notice that it has these incredible counterpoints or contrasts, at least they seem that way. Uh, poverty and riches, uh, power and impotence, self-interest and self-denial, and everything the world teaches us about what to strive for and how to find these and use them and keep them, Jesus says the opposite. He turns the world's way and our way and sin's way upside down. And you know what it means? It means Jesus was countercultural. In fact, he was a radical Jesus was a fanatic by the world's standards. I wonder if you've ever recognised that before. Uh, and the, they're not actually labels that we tend to want to associate with or to be people we are companions with. But as out of step as it may feel, uh, Jesus wants you to be one too. What's more, uh, he says it won't be very uh, bad for you. He says it will be very, very good for you. The question is, is that possible? Can you imagine that? What grounds are there to believe that? And how will you know if you've received that? For those answers and more like them, we are listening to Jesus' words today from Luke 6. Now, you remember from last week, Jesus was starting to get pushback from those in power, the religious leaders of his day, from the Pharisees and teachers of the law who didn't like what he was saying. And in the episodes between the last one we read last week, the healing of the paralytic, uh, uh, we read last week, and our passage today, things only get more intense. Uh, they don't like what he's saying. They don't want, like what he's doing either. And it's this increasing opposition to Jesus, like, like the timer on a bomb counting down to zero, which is the springboard for this sermon on the plane we read part of today, that reveals what it'll mean for us when we throw our lot in with him. How does he do that? He does it by showing our extraordinary family identity, our radical discipleship, and our wisdom with leadership. And so first to our extraordinarily family identity. Did you notice who was there as Jesus uh, began to speak? Uh, we read from verse 17. It's quite a crowd. Uh, it includes the newly minted apostles. 
the 12, his, his wider group of disciples, because, of course, there were far more people who followed him than just the apostles by now. Uh, and, and Luke actually makes a point in verse 29 that what he says from verse 29 on, he says in particular to his disciples. And then there's the great crowd of people who are also there from far and wide listening on. What an audience. Uh, what power to influence is in his hands. Give this crowd what they want and they would follow him anywhere. But he doesn't do what rulers and kings and generals normally do, normally tell these people who follow them, does he? Uh, Jesus teaches his disciples we talk about disciples all the time here at church. It simply means those who are taught. And what does Jesus teach his disciples here? Well, it's all about their family identity. Now, as I read it through just these first few verses from verse 20, uh, as we step along through it, uh, have a think for yourself. Uh, is he making a promise for the future here or an observation about something that's true now? reading from verse 20. Looking at his disciples, Jesus said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Now, more often than not, Jesus is making an observation of what's true already in these words. It's a remarkable observation nonetheless, but he's stating the facts. His disciples, the poor in spirit, those who hunger now, those who weep now, those whom others hate, are blessed by God now. The extraordinary thing here is, and I expect you've all noticed it, is to think of being in these seemingly uh, undesirable circumstances as being blessed. What does it mean to be blessed? Uh, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. To be blessed means to be shown someone's loving kindness. To be blessed by God is to be shown God's loving kindness. Now, the world around us uh, doesn't see those two things lining up. Blessing and going without or suffering, that doesn't add up for the average punter. We much prefer the alternates on the other list we'll get to in a minute. In fact, there are even people who say they follow Jesus and think they should own, that should only bring with it health and wealth and wisdom. And yet, this isn't the first time Jesus has said this. You will remember, uh, well, we heard our first reading from Isaiah 61. You might remember back to Luke chapter 4, where Jesus himself quoted Isaiah 60, 61 uh, when he read the scroll of Isaiah. And Jesus isn't talking about economic well-being, we learn from there. He's talking about spiritual well-being. When Isaiah speaks of the poor and the hungry, he's talking about the spiritually poor and the spiritually hungry. He's talking about those who recognise that without God's forgiveness, we are lost. 
without God and under his judgment. The economic and the spiritual may line up with each other. Jesus' disciples may be poor and may be hungry. The humility that comes with both often go together. But here's where Jesus turns things on their head. You can be poor in the world's eyes and so spiritually rich. Isn't that what Jesus is saying here? If you belong to the poor, the hungry, the weeping, the hated disciples of Jesus, you are blessed now. Yours is the kingdom of God now. A relationship with God. Experiencing forgiveness, free from judgment. And yes, too, with more yet to come in the future. But do you see also uh, what Jesus isn't saying? He isn't saying to the people who are listening then or to we here today, you should do this or you should do that and then you'll enter my kingdom. He's saying, if you've trusted me, if you were my disciple, you are already blessed by God. This may be the family identity for us as disciples, but it's not what we'd expect or pick if it were just left to you and me. Turn with me to the woes then that come next, the great counterpoint to the blessings. Again, Jesus isn't building an impressive kingdom in human eyes. How clearly is that shown by what he says here? And it's only more clear as these and the blessings sit beside one another. And so we read from verse 24. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you whom everyone, when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. The kingdom of God is this topsy-turvy kingdom isn't it where the people you'd expect receive the blessing of God are under the curse of God where the people we find impressive and without Jesus would want to be like are actually the people Jesus says you don't want to be like and again it's our spiritual not our economic well-being that Jesus is describing it picks up the whole shape of the old testament that came before uh, those who by this life's standards think themselves rich, think themselves well-fed, those who laugh now and hear people speak well of them like the Pharisees Jesus has been in contest with, suffer from and express the very heart of what's wrong with the world, the very heart of sin, pride. And David quoted uh, Dr Martin Lloyd-Jones last week talking about sin where uh, what he quoted being said was that one of the great deceptions of sin is it is like having a disease that persuades you you are not sick. And here Jesus, he wants to transform how we see ourselves, to see ourselves through God's eyes, to let him be the rule by which we measure ourselves. And wonderfully too, 
to show us the riches of what we have now when we trust in him, even if by any other measure we judged ourselves poor. Is this how you see yourself? Through God's eyes. Can't we rejoice? Yes, we can. To be members of God's family. In fact, that's how God sees us. He sees us as members of his family. In verse 35, uh, and we'll get there in a few minutes, uh, when we are disciples of Jesus, we are members of God's family. Now, remembering the incredible opposites of the kingdom of God, the, the, the poor are rich, the rich are poor, before we leave our family identity, there's one other uh, in view in verses 20 to 26 that being a disciple of Jesus comes with. And from the way Jesus uh, speaks, you can expect it. Being hated, being excluded, being insulted, being rejected. And he doesn't put it in terms of if, but when. Now, you might think that if God is all-powerful and rules over all, that he wouldn't let anyone treat his people that way, let alone treat him that way. And yet that is exactly what he is willing to do. Verse 23, rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven for that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. God's messengers before Jesus got the same treatment. Jesus himself here is now getting the same treatment and we shouldn't be surprised if we experience the same treatment too. On the other hand, in verse 26, Jesus says, Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. What Jesus says is radical, isn't it? And radically changes our lives. And so, and so too, how we should respond in the face of opposition, when our sinful desire is to protect ourselves and try and shore up our security or to pay back injustice with a reprisal, there is another way. As we read in verse 27, but to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. It's God's topsy-turvy kingdom again, isn't it? Uh, things of the uh, up is down and down is up to the way we would design them. This is, this is what living as a member of the family looks like. You see, the world's way, my self-centred way, is to treat other people the way they treat me. If they do something good to me, I do something good to them. If they do something bad to me, I do something bad to them. But when we act like that, and we've all been around long enough to know, how does that go for us? And Jesus isn't telling us 
to love our enemies so that we can get something out of it. He's telling us because this is who we've been remade to be. This is how we've been remade by God. I said we'd get to verse 35. We're there now. Uh, Jesus says, Then your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High because he is kind and the, to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Uh, I've often thought to myself about children taking on uh, their family or not likeness. So I got something in my eye. Uh, one of my children lucked out. Uh, he looks like me and he spends his whole life in the fear that he'll look more like me down the track. The other two, you saw one earlier, they landed on their feet. They look like Louise. Uh, But family likeness is seen not just in what people look like but how they act, isn't it? And the transformation that trusting Jesus brings shapes how we live and above all how we love Ducking back to verses 31 and 32, do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. Your enemy may be the person you've had a huge conflict with that maybe you will never see again. But they may also be, or at least for a time, at least during the time of misunderstanding or of differing views or in the face of conflict, making a decision, they may be your neighbour, the person you work with or study with. They may be your family members. They may even be your spouse if you have one. God's word to us today challenges us to change the way we see the world, to move ourselves out of our self-centred, me-centric way of seeing every communication and action and conflict and to place uh, the other person and serving them at the centre. Now, the last piece of this radical discipleship is there in verses 36 to 38. And I expect you've heard uh, verse 37 uh, a few times in your life. Do not judge and you will not be judged. Uh, Often, I might add, when you're in the middle of a conflict and someone says it to you, or you might have even said it to someone else. But let me read beginning at verse 36. Be merciful just as your Father in heaven is merciful. Do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. Now the key here is that verses 36 to 38 aren't a new or different section from what's being said before that we've heard already from verse 27. Rather, Uh, Jesus is shining a light from a different angle so that we might uh, have the benefit of understanding both more richly. The the, the NIV uh, translators, as with many translators, put headings in our Bible. This can have the effect of breaking up the flow of things that are actually meant to be joined together. But if you're wondering how you love your enemies, uh, 
which we've been talking about before, here it is. Show them mercy. Forgive them when they sin against you or those who matter to you. Do not judge them. Do not condemn. Now that doesn't mean that we as Christians shouldn't be discerning about each other's actions. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't pull one another up if we see each other in sin out of love. But it does mean not seating ourselves on the judgment seat of Christ, acting as if we are the final judge in our lives and in our relationships, locking the door on the possibility of loving our enemy or forgiving them, even if now at this time they're not looking for forgiveness or to be reconciled. While there is still life, there is still hope. And that is exactly how God treats us, showing us his mercy, forgiving us our sin. And wonderfully, wonderfully, he doesn't wait on us so that his follows our his action follows our action. His forgiveness comes before ours and enables ours. And so God's word today isn't challenging us to pick ourselves up, to lift ourselves up by our bootstraps, to earn his reward. Jesus isn't here even laying the burden of guilt-ridden introspection on us today. Rather, as we hear it, God is working in us so we might live and we might live it out. It's by the power of Jesus' teaching and the forgiveness he has won on the cross that we can forgive others and love even our enemies. I guess that's an appropriate spot to stop and to call on each other to take a moment for reflection uh, here and now but perhaps as well later today and during this week is there someone who I have not loved that I have the opportunity and privilege to love in this way in this radical way as God has loved me. The other thing, uh, as our community changes, as different things shape how we think, one of the things that, that I've noticed, that others have noticed, that they've begun to talk about is that younger generations and generations who are part of your lives are experiencing a change in the way they think about the world and view the world and it's actually becoming further and further away from the, the way that Jesus and his discipleship had shaped our world in the past. And where it really hits the ground is that the place of forgiveness has really been taken away. 
for all the things that have been called out in recent times that should be called out and are appropriately called out, there is something incredibly lacking. The cancel culture has no forgiveness. And as that influences and permeates people who at the moment are in younger generations, but they will get older, we can love them in the fear that they may live under that when they do something wrong or think something different to other people that they too will be cancelled, excluded. We can love them by our willingness to forgive in the opportunities that we have to love them. And I think I think the gospel will, will have many opportunities to expose what is missing in a world that views the world as a world without God. Coming back to the end, the end of the Sermon on the Plain and remembering the opposition of the Pharisees that comes before this Sermon on the Plain. Remember how I said Jesus had appointed the 12 apostles just before our reading today. It seems Luke has arranged this very carefully, uh, where the appointment a number of the 12 seems significant, like the 12 sons of uh, Israel and the 12 tribes of Israel were their founding fathers. So there are 12 foundational disciples. And what that signals, along with what Jesus says here, is the appointment of new leadership, new leadership in place of the religious leaders and Israel's old leadership. And here next then, uh, through what I take as a transition, a shift as we move through verses 36 to 38, because they connect with what's come before and they connect and lead into what comes after, we see here God's wisdom for leaders and those being led. Both are being addressed. And so if you cast your eyes, I haven't got it up on the screen, but if you cast your eyes to the parable of verse 39, Jesus is saying there, leaders who can't see where they're going will lead those who follow them into danger. At the same time, he's saying, if you follow someone who doesn't know where they're going, you won't do any better than them. Or when we come to verses 41 and 42, the speck and the log in the eye, haven't the Pharisees and leaders of Israel been judging Jesus when it's Jesus' job to judge them? They're the ones in the first place he's speaking about with an almighty plank in their eye but consumed with pointing out the specks in the eyes of those they lead. At the same time, Jesus is speaking to the disciples here too, speaking to us. What's expected of the leader is expected of those who follow them. Leaders are to lead in a way that can be and should be and will be imitated. The thing is, as disciples of Jesus, it's not a case of you you are a leader or you are not. Uh, Some of us, and at some times, will be leaders in the way we generally 
think and talk about leadership, but the privilege of being Jesus' disciple is that we may influence each other. We may be an example of discipleship that can be and should be and will be imitated. Jesus says, Disciples will be known by what they produce. From verse 43, No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognised by its own fruit. Those who aren't disciples of Jesus will live and love and be motivated in the world the way the, way the world is. Those who are will live and love and be motivated by how God, through Jesus, has loved us. So how can you produce good fruit? How can you produce a bit of a Middle Eastern leaning here? Figs and grapes, as Jesus puts it. Well, we've already been hearing, haven't we, to some extent in verse 26 to 27 and uh, 20 to 26, 27 to 38 and 36 to 45, uh, where we've seen our extraordinarily, extraordinary family identity our radical discipleship and our wisdom for leadership. Well, Jesus gives us one final overarching statement on it from verse 46, which answers this question and really is the coverall summing up it all, where he says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? As for everyone who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice, I will show you what they are like. They are like a man building a house uh, who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. When a flood came, the torrent struck that house but could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built his house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed and its destruction was complete. Jesus is Lord and we should give him his due title. We've been hearing a lot in the last few days, haven't we, just because of the the sad circumstances of Queen Elizabeth's death, of formalities and institutions and authorities and their responsibilities. But this title... Jesus' Lord comes with far greater responsibility than even those and authority. And we're kidding ourselves if we say that he is our Lord, but we're not willing to do what he says. Again, he's not saying you have to earn my forgiveness or impress me with your works. In fact, he's simply calling us to live honestly rather than in hypocrisy and with his forgiveness. If you find yourself finding Jesus' words difficult to stomach, if you have found yourself, if you do now, if you do in the future to come, if you find that what he says and his values are different from yours, our world around us calls evil good, 
when it comes to marriage and sexuality and abortion and greed and gossip and lies. But Jesus changes that. And wherever you are at this moment, if you feel that tension of whether to listen to and obey Jesus' word, Jesus' word meets each of us where we are at. But it won't leave us there. It will change and transform us. It will make us radical and fanatics if our lives are built upon this foundation, this rock, the Lord Jesus and his radical teaching. How about I lead us in prayer? Dear Father in heaven, we do thank you again for the great freedom and joy Jesus brings that what is up is turned to be down and what is down is turned to be up in a way that is so inviting and helpful and necessary and wonderful for us to have life in you. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your generosity. And so we pray, work in us that change that we might be like you, knowing with confidence that you have already done all that is necessary. May we reflect at your likeness in the way we love our enemies, in the way we lead and follow, and in the way our foundation is firmly on your life-giving word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.